0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash impact. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, BuzzFeed and the education of Ben Smith. The media business has been home to experiments ever since the invention of paper. Making money from those experiments is hard. Fueling experiments with the right blend of high, middle, and lowbrow content that regularly attracts audiences, that's hard too. Turning those experiments into enterprises that survive for years, much less decades, also very hard. Six prime experiments from digital media's modern era all debuted in close proximity to one another in the early 2000s. Gawker, Facebook, Twitter, HuffPost, Politico, and Business Insider. All were trailblazers in an innovative and unforgiving technological ecosystem that ultimately flattened local newspapers and spawned other closely-watched and lavishly-funded media startups, Vice Media and BuzzFeed among them. Some of the new entrants have faced the same fates as local news. Gawker's gone. Vice, once valued at $5.7 billion, recently declared bankruptcy. BuzzFeed recently shuttered its news operation. What makes this so hard? What's at stake? And what if digital media disruptions taught us? Joining Crash Course to make sense of all of this is Ben Smith. Ben's the editor-in-chief of Semaphore, a news startup, and he's the former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. He's also the author of a new bittersweet book, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. Welcome, Ben.
2: Thanks for having me. That was an incredibly thoughtful introduction.
1: You know, I finished the book last night, by the way, and we'll get into it some more, but, you know, it was sort of like a tour down memory lane. And before we get started, a little more resume. Ben was also a media columnist with The New York Times and a former reporter for a number of newspapers and websites, including Politico. His experience is vast. And I've known Ben for about 15 years. Okay, Ben, here's a little quiz to get things going. Who said the value of a broadcast network is directly linked to the number of viewers? I do not know. Yeah, that wasn't really meant to trap you. I I
2: thought you were gonna ask me which Disney princess I was (laughs)
1: though. Not today. It was David Sarnoff, the founder of the Radio Corporation of America, or RCA. And I looked it up. I mean, I was interested in what Sarnoff had to say about new media. Because I think we've gone through these things episodically in U.S. history where a new technology comes along that is disruptive and all the kids get into it. And I think the radio kids in the 1920s and 1930s were just as ahead of the time and ahead of the curve and excited about new developments as we were now. And I think some of the rules are similar, right? Sarnoff is basically voicing, whenever he said that, say in the 1930s, what we ended up saying about the Internet in the early 90s make it big, and that's the reason I brought it up.
2: And about the newspapers, a you know, about the New York Sun 100 years before that. Nothing is new in this business.
1: You know, the, the founder of BuzzFeed, Jonah Peretti, was constantly chasing scale and virality, and he's a central figure in your book. And at the end of the book, Traffic, which I recommend to everyone to read, you note that Jonah's magical thinking led him to try to manage and, and control the Internet's forces, but then, quote-unquote, but the best even a genius can do most of the time is usually to see those forces coming and catch their drag. Talk to me a little bit about what you meant by that observation of Jonah and your time together with him.
2: Sure. Jonah had been funny to sort of even use this language, but he was probably went to college in the late nineties and was sort of an internet prankster at first. I think the phrase at the time was culture jammer. And he did, you know, kind of, funny anti-corporate pranks that would get shared among people who thought they were funny and kind of shared their politics past hand to hand and had this realization that there was this new form of distribution which was people liking what you had to say and sharing it with all their friends and that digital media really meaning email at that point could give that enormous (laughs) scale bigger scale than the largest broadcaster you know or printing press in fact i think he was Certainly not the first person to experience that. Like I, we were all getting a lot of email forwards in the '90s from our relatives who had political views or, or just, you know, great senses of humor. But he really saw it very abstractly and understood that this was a new system of distribution and really saw the real wave that was coming, which was social media, which was Facebook first of all, but also Twitter and Pinterest and other platforms, where most of us, the whole country, would be distributing you know, news and entertainment to one another. I mean, with BuzzFeed, he, what he was essentially doing was sort of getting in, into position to catch that wave.
1: But also as a sort of sorcerer's apprentice, trying to also control it. Not just to catch the wave, but at least in the early stages, believing that he could find mechanisms or insights into trying to control that. And, and I don't mean that critically. I mean it observationally, you know, that that's what he was after. When you go through the entire arc of your book, At the end, you sort of conclude that it's almost like a, not a fool's errand, but it's an impossible task.
2: Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, we, he, all of us made many mistakes, not just one. So it's a little hard to boil it down, but there certainly was a sense that you could develop a kind of special expertise in navigating that, this new world and sell that.
1: So let's just back up a little further, say pre-Jonah or outside of Jonah. What do you see as the ground zero moment when lots of digital media companies and even legacy publishers began chasing traffic?
2: You know, I think like lots of interesting things in history. It was really this scene in lower Manhattan among people who knew each other and went to the same bars and you know had sort of similar politics, but by no means identical. In the years after, sort of crucially, after the bubble burst in Silicon Valley, and there was this moment that it's actually like, it's hard to remember that this happened, but there was a moment when there was a thread of conventional wisdom that said, the new center of technology and investment in America is Silicon Alley in Manhattan. Silicon Valley is dead. And that these new companies are going to take the sort of New York expertise in media and culture and merge it with these new technologies to build giant companies. You know, Foursquare and Etsy were two companies that still exist in that world. But these media companies, Huffington Post, the first to, you know, to sell for a lot of money, Gawker, probably the most famous of that moment, were the core of that world. And, you know, there were a lot of reasons that they were all chasing the same audience, the same people. But fundamentally, there was a, I think, two main ones One was there was this huge alienation from the mainstream media, from the New York Times in particular, following its atrocious performance during the Iraq war that had powered Howard Dean's campaign for president. You know, and that was just totally real. And I think people forget how well-earned that was. And then there was just the reality, you know, that we were all at that point, the internet wasn't some weird exotic thing like it had been in the nineties. It was something we were using at work. We were on the web, we were sending emails. And you know, the big, great American newspapers and television networks, sort of had not figured it out. They were putting newspaper articles onto the web many, many hours after they were published. And it was, you couldn't watch a video. I mean, it was just sort of, there was this disconnect between how regular people, you and me, were looking for information and living our lives and the way in which news organizations and media companies were trying to talk to us. And so both in the sort of substance and in the texture and, and in the way it was communicated, I think there was this huge appetite and interest in new voices from consumers first of all and as that developed this new generation of media entrepreneurs in particular you know developed tools to measure in detail you know what people were interested in
1: what engaged people yeah. and how to engage them i think the other thing that newspapers crucially overlooked you know with the dawn of the consumer commercial easily accessible web was what it was going to do to how they monetized their content how they made money off of their businesses. Famously, Craigslist just wiped out classified advertising for small, local, and mid-sized newspapers that essentially relied on that to pay the bills. It is arguably the central, if not certainly one of the central reasons local newspapers got devastated in that period. Because not only were consumers' tastes changing and consumers' interest in how they approach news, but the foundation of how you made money around news and around storytelling got completely disrupted by the web.
2: Yeah, just cut the legs out of these particularly metropolitan newspapers that had been almost monopoly providers of advertising to people who sold mattresses and refrigerators for 50 years and had made enormous amounts of money, built huge towers next to City Hall in every city in America. You know, and had had multiple revenue lines, but suddenly found that advertising had been stolen by these nimble basically better versions of classified advertising on the internet. And the other revenue source was subscription, you know, was in retrospect premature, but people just hadn't been trained by Spotify and Netflix to pay money on the internet and didn't know how and weren't really willing or interested.
1: And even, you know, the newspapers discounted their subscription prices because the ad monopoly they enjoyed was so lush. Right. They didn't have to really exist on a subscription stream. And during that time too, I think on the web, the play to make money was display ads build up a lot of traffic, and sell a huge number to advertisers who would then put their ads on your website. That was the argument, that as long as you had a mammoth audience, you could make a lot of money selling display ads against that. And that held sway for quite a while, didn't it?
2: I mean, it wasn't so much as an argument as a not entirely thought-out impulse, but, you know, Gawker's a good example. In 2003, they launched, and they find that it's this hot new thing that's talking to an influential crowd of New Yorkers, and they can sell ads for $9 CPMs, meaning the cost for a thousand views, you know, and they have every reason, if you're not thinking too hard about it, it's like, well, we have this very rudimentary product that we're selling for nine bucks and we're getting 20% more of these clicks every month. And like, this is a great business. This is going to grow like crazy. We're going to improve the product into sort of, you know, just better ads with better data. And then we're going to have three times or a hundred times as much inventory. And the problem is that that's the way you think about commodities, where there's a limited amount of them available. There's a limited quantity. And the core thing that makes a commodity valuable is scarcity. And ultimately, a $9 CPM today, 20 years later, it's like pretty good. Price has gone down. It have stayed flat or gone down, certainly relative to inflation. And the inventory is effectively infinite.
1: And I'd say probably the first third to the first half of your book, is sort of charting those early days with a a close emphasis on Gawker and the Huffington Post as models for what that world was like. Again, getting at what I asked you about earlier on about Jonah, you know, entrepreneurial, smart people who didn't seem to sleep much, wanting to essentially try to control this brave new world of digital media and digital advertising. And, you know, the thing that kept coming up for me as I read that part of your book was they're chasing it but they're not owning it. They think at different moments they own it. They think they've found the secret sauce, but as soon as someone discovers one trick for ensnaring readers, others can adopt it pretty quickly. So your competitive advantage evaporates in real time, at least if all of what you're about is garnering traffic for traffic's sake. And the book's loaded with, I think, lots of examples of entrepreneurs and journalists who thought they could do that. And then over time reality kind of intruded
2: yeah i mean i think you know the sort of the science of figuring out exactly what people want or what they want to share and giving it back to them i mean inherently there's a tension in that and having any identity yourself and i think that's what you're talking about which is the all of these things at their worst where i figured out exactly what you want and i will give it to you but it sort of erases the identity of the publisher. And pretty soon you wind up on an internet like the internet of maybe five years ago, where every publisher is doing exactly the same thing and everything looks exactly the same.
1: When you were sort of venturing around the digital world back then, I think you probably were at Politico at that point, maybe late newspaper life, just venturing into Politico when all this stuff started Yeah, I had some
2: blogs in New York and then went to Politico.
1: What did you make of it then? What were you seeing and what sort of had your mind on fire?
2: I mean, I think the reason that it was interesting both to go back and to work with people like Jonas, I never thought about this particularly abstractly. Like I was a reporter who liked to break news and liked to talk to my sources all day and saw these digital tools as a way to kind of like, wow, I can like talk to all 1,500 people who care about local politics. Like I know them all. These are people I can name probably still. It wasn't a huge universe. But instead of calling them one by one and telling them this interesting thing I'd heard and asking them if they'd heard anything interesting, which is basically what reporting is, I could publish it on my blog and then they'd email me. And it felt very, very connected to, like, the core act of journalism, which is about communicating with people. And it was also very contained. And this is true of a lot of these early sites before social media kind of collapsed context, that you knew who you were talking to. They knew you. It was direct. It was direct. You had a voice and a personality. And it, one of the things it meant was that your readers would be forgiving. You know, you'd make a mistake occasionally and apologize. And they'd say, like, all right, I've been talking to this guy for a long time. That This isn't the norm. And there was this context around the communication with your audience that I think is, as I think about what went away, I think was very, very crucial to what was happening there and is something that kind of gradually evaporated.
1: Since we just talked about gradual evaporation, I want to evaporate for a minute and take a break and hear from one of our sponsors, and we'll come right back.
3: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
1: We're back with Ben Smith, the editor of Semaphore and the author of a new book, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. We've been talking about the foundational ramparts of digital media over the last couple decades, and there have been startups that made it look as if they had bottled lightning. Post bet on search and homepages. BuzzFeed bet on Facebook. Axios bet on newsletters. You guys at Semaphore are betting on newsletters. How much of this is innovation and how much of it is just trend surfing? You know, I think there's a distinction between those two things. Because you see HuffPost leapfrogging over Gawker and then BuzzFeed leapfrogs over HuffPost. And it gets back to this thing we've been talking about trying to corral traffic and whether or not you can have a permanent place
2: in the world when you're doing that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is a simple question, right? Like, because there are other outlets like Politico, where I used to work, that has carved out a place in the world. And permanent is a very strong word, Tim, in this business. But I think media and news are always both, right? You're always both trying to do something that's quite timeless and tell people what's going on in the world and address them where and how they consume media now. We're doing a podcast at the moment, in fact. I guess I I tend not to think that these are sort of timeless ideological questions, but much more specific ones. And I think in some ways this generation of companies that is struggling and failing made a very, very specific bet about what was gonna happen. And the metaphor was cable. In fact, the chairman of Huffington Post, Ken Lear, and then of Buzzfeed had been around for the birth of MTV. And the theory, which was not universally shared and some people thought we were total idiots, thought the investors who put millions of dollars in were idiots. And I think there's a fair argument now about whether we were delusional morons or just wrong. But was that just as, you know, they let some, some entrepreneurs lay cable wires in the ground and then they want people to sign up for their cable television service. And so they basically, you know, hire MTV, ESPN, CNN, to produce content for them and to fill the pipes they've laid. And those become huge, I don't know, permanent again is a strong word but very successful media operations, very successful businesses. And the metaphor that we were relying on was that in some sense, the internet in general, but really more specifically for some of these companies more recently, platforms like Facebook and Snap and Twitter were new cables, and that people who could make content that was purpose-built for them, the way MTV and ESPN had 30 years earlier, would thrive in this new ecosystem because these platforms would ultimately see that they had to share the money with these content companies now that obviously did not turn out to be true
1: wow this is a good one but what i would argue actually is that facebook and twitter never were cables they were programming the cable was always the web
2: i think that's a really good way to see it in fact they're programming that's being canceled now that was one of the many things that was wrong about that
1: Correct. And and they decided, you know, Facebook said our programming will include a little bit of other people's programming, other programmers like newspapers or magazines, plus individuals' own programming, your aunt, your neighbor, whoever, and we'll package all of that. Our programming will be that. We will be your everything store for conversations and information. And Twitter said our programming will be celebrities, journalists, and influential people conversing with one another, posting things they think are interesting. But the everlasting... Cable beneath all that was the internet. And I think even with cable, yeah, nothing is permanent. I was going to say, I think
2: this is so easy to say in retrospect, Tim. What about email? Is email a pipe or is it built on top of the pipes? These are sort of metaphorical. It's built
1: on top of the pipe. Only because I think this gets at how you take advantage of a pipe, not whether or not the pipe doesn't exist or whether or not email is a pipe or a thing writing on the pipe. Because what's interesting to me is even with cable... You can have a whole array of different programs that get built and pumped through cable, but some last longer than others. Some engage in a more permanent way. And that's actually the silver chalice that everyone is after, is long-lasting, maybe not permanent, but long-lasting engagement versus short-term, streaky, fun, but effervescent engagement. You know, it's interesting when you bring up that Politico is still around. Of course, it is Business Insider still around. The New York Times, of course, is very much around, even though it was a stodgy old horse in the argument of the early 2000s. And I think some of this is is not to be Monday morning quarterbacking other people's decisions. It's actually to get around that and just say, well, how do you skin the cat? How do you actually find a way of engaging on a consistent basis in the digital era?
2: So, I mean, I I guess I'm going to quibble with you a little more, but I think you're fundamentally right. The thing we are trying to do and that we're all trying to do is connect with human beings to whom we're providing a real service who want to come back whichever platform we're on but i also think just things are more contingent than we like to imagine when we look back i mean cable didn't have to be cable they could have made the mistake of having it be all filled with commercials and public access and nobody would have ever adapted it and facebook and twitter by contrast maybe would have found a way to create a permanent relationship with an audience a way say netflix has With high quality professional content. I think these things are very unpredictable and quirky and based on the often ideologies and decisions of their executives.
1: And happenstance and luck. Mark Zuckerberg got lucky. You know, he was in a dorm at Harvard at just the right moment, and there was a technology available that made Facebook possible, and he was surrounded by people who were experimenting with that, and he was smart. But there were a lot of other people who weren't lucky, who were just as smart. And in that context, this is a quote from uh, William Randolph Hearst. It is the journal's policy to engage brains as well as to get at the news, for the public is even more fond of entertainment than it is of information. That's a newspaper guy, you know, the model for Citizen Kane. Again, this has gone on episodically forever. But, you know, he could have easily has been talking about putting listicles next to hardcore reporting that wins Pulitzers, which was essentially the BuzzFeed model. Here's another quote, and then I'll stop giving you quotes for the rest of the episodes. But this intrigued me as I thought about our conversation. I always have to say we have to give most of the people what they want most of the time. That's what they expect from us. That's Bill Paley talking about TV and CBS. And again, another form of media, another media in another disguise that was trying to figure out this mix of highbrow and lowbrow and audience engagement in order to survive. And I bring up both of those quotes from Hearst and Paley to sort of tie it into what you did at BuzzFeed, because I'd like to drill down specifically into your thinking about the strategy at buzzfeed and what you experienced there
2: yeah so i mean i think the core insights at buzzfeed were about distribution and jonah was in a way that was sometimes a little eerie and part of his strength kind of content neutral like he was open to the possibility that people were interested in anything and wanted to see what it was Didn't mean he was amoral about it but that was sort of where he was coming from and the distribution channel that we were thinking a lot about was Facebook, because It was increasingly the largest. This is 2012 to 2015, say. And what you could see if you paid a lot of attention to it was that it had been a place where people shared pictures of like their kids and family gatherings. And then, you know, then sometimes it would be like a cute baby that wasn't your baby, it was just very cute or like a cute dog that was not your dog or a silly meme. And Buzzfeed kind of was born out of that moment when it was like there was this kind of public content on the internet that was really silly and lowbrow. And then it started to be news, links to publications, you know, things about the world. And that's part of why I think Jonah hired me to say, oh, well, this is the new kind of content that is being shared. And, you know, we had all sorts of theories about exactly what kind of news would be shared on there. The dominant theory was that it would be positive news that reflected well on the person sharing it. You know, appeals for earthquake relief and thoughtful Atlantic articles and things and new information that would make you look like, oh, look, I'm a smart person sharing new information, but certainly not things that made you look like you were a screaming lunatic. So obviously we were wrong about that. But there was also, (laughs) you know, it was a moment, which is, this is very hard to remember, but for a lot of people, the idea that you had this feed on Facebook in which there was news and pictures of babies and funny memes all mixed together was kind of cool. And BuzzFeed really launched as a all-purpose content provider to that channel.
1: Within that mix, you assembled a group of very talented reporters that did some really interesting, important work. I mentioned earlier a Pulitzer. I think that was for China's treatment of, of Uyghurs.
2: Yeah, I mean, we both wrote new media companies that won Pulitzers, you at the Huffington Post, both really for spectacular journalism that absolutely deserved it. And also, now when I see that a new media company has won a Pulitzer, it's like, set your clock for the layoffs. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, prizes don't get me started on these prizes anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. The Pulitzer we got at Huffington Post was a series I edited on wounded war veterans and how they were treated when they came home. And, you know, that was probably almost P Cuff Post around that point in time. You know, you had some controversy around publishing the Steel dossier. We could probably have a whole episode on that. There was inventive clickbait. There were claims at time of copyright infringement. It was a kinetic, complicated stew that you were presiding over. And when you look at that now, is there anything you would have done differently looking back at how you launched yourself into that?
2: I mean, all sorts of things, almost too many to name. But to me, the core that that this sort of social distribution would keep growing, and would inevitably become a solid business because the business really got shaky long before the audience did, in a way. There was one year, maybe it was 2017, when suddenly BuzzFeed News was getting checks from Facebook, from Twitter, from Snapchat. And I was like, oh, this is sort of what Jonah saw coming. We're going to become a content provider to these new, stable, permanent tubes. And then that really evaporated. And so I think the business thesis you know, just could not have supported news at the sort of quality and level we were producing it. And I think we would have stayed much, much smaller. I mean, that's sort of what they were trying to do at the end. I think the advertising business around news or the business of news is very different from the business of entertainment. And we didn't serve ourselves well by trying to bundle them together. But I think these are sort of slightly, I don't know, technical points, but yeah. Then the bigger point was just the culture shifted a lot. And and come 2015 and the rise of this global wave of right-wing populism represented in the US by Trump, that this notion that your Facebook feed is this fun melange, the stew, that I am happily stirring of memes and news and stuff from your friends, turns into this absolute nightmare. A lot of people who had enjoyed it stop enjoying it. That was a turn that I just absolutely didn't see coming.
1: Let's pause there for a second while we take another break and hear from our sponsors and then we'll come right back
3: success is more than a destination it's a path you take one step at a time it's dedication it's fortitude and it's the work because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE.
0: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
1: Genius, rivalry, and delusion in the billion-dollar race to go viral. Ben, we are just talking about what worked and what didn't work for you during your time at BuzzFeed. Why do you think other enterprises have outlasted BuzzFeed, whether that's Politico, Insider, or even the New York Times? What gave them greater staying power?
2: I mean, I think these are business stories and each is specific. Politico developed a very specific business-to-business product in Washington that served Lobbyists and other sort of interested parties, really high-quality information about what was happening, and I mean they built a really great business. And Insider got acquired. One of our investors at BuzzFeed, who read the book, called me up afterward and said, "You know, this could have been a lot shorter book, because the theme of this book is you should say yes to your first offer. That, that's <laughs> it. Just just publish
1: that. When Bob Iger calls, yeah, to just say itself. yeah,
2: yeah. And then I think you know, if you look at the companies you mentioned, many of them. the time so business insider sold at its peak and so is operating in a different environment i mean i think vox media is the one story of a company that you know whose valuation is probably a quarter what it was but you know it's been less ideological in some ways about representing the future and more careful and frugal and tactical about kind of steering through these shoals and has survived and done better than the others
1: i also think specificity matters in terms of subject matter i think in a very noisy kinetic world where people are looking for specific funnels of valuable information or insights. They're now picking and choosing around things that they care about deeply if they're going to pay for them.
2: Yeah. I think that maybe I guess you should talk to the folks at the Daily Mail about that. I think there are great general interest media businesses and very specific ones like Gawker that crashed and burned. I think I think it's complicated.
1: Well I mean I would say that I think the Daily Mail specific business is gossip. As was Gawker's. I just think the Daily Mail built it in a different way than Gawker did. And I'm not saying shame on Gawker. Oh, Gawker was stupid. I'm just saying they evolved in different ways. And the Daily Mail had a footing in its specialty, which is gossip. But they both were in gossip. One lasted, one didn't. You know, Insider did get bought out. But they also said we are going to basically be a cheeky contemporary take on the business world and nothing else. For a time. For a time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Times is an argument against all of that because it's the last great general interest platform or one of the last great general interest platforms. But I do think, again, longevity is an interesting thing for me as a leavening force for thinking about strategy and thinking about content and media and what goes. I'm not saying that that is the only lens, but it's a useful one, I think, that sometimes cuts past technological change or the whims of audiences. But you can also call me out for being entirely wrong. Well,
2: I mean, you know, tell it to the guys who got into radio. There was somebody saying to them, this is just some new technological fad. Don't get all bent out of shape about that. And there are these sort of eternal truths about what we're doing and what we're trying to do. But the distribution matters a lot, too. I think the people who think that they learned crystal clear lessons fighting the last war often get themselves into trouble in the next ones. Other people who are out there building their Maginot lines right now.
1: But don't you think people aspire at least for screens for value amid the noise or flood of information? Oh yeah, I think the problem.
2: Cons- I think one of the things that's so interesting and the reason that sort of the reason that there aren't eternal truths is because what consumers need changes so much. In two thousand and five, people were looking for voices outside a discredited establishment who spoke to them, who gave them an alternative access to less hypocritical information. And we're thrilled at the notion of having access to thousands of new voices and international media that you couldn't previously see. I think 20 years later, people are totally overwhelmed by a deluge of stuff that's impossible to know what to trust, who to trust, and are looking for something totally different, actually. They're looking for voices, if not of authority, of a kind of trustworthiness. They're looking for individuals more than they're looking for institutions, which is something different. And I think the opportunity, which, you know, exists, a lot of the fundamentals are the same and exist inside a place like the New York Times. But I think what people who care about news are looking for in a given moment is so related to the moment.
1: But we've seen as well within that reality, and I agree with you about that, is this push now towards subscription models, which aren't really about scale. Some people can scale a subscription model. I mean, you need to, to make money, but they're not scale in the way that the free web would scale.
2: Yeah. It's not scale for the sake of scale. And it it pushes you toward a clearer identity, a clearer relationship with your audience, something BuzzFeed never had, that's for sure. But I do think one of the interesting things you've seen in the last 18 months, I, I mean, I'm always skeptical when journalists get ideological about business models. Like this is hard enough work being ideological about, you know, the truth without then getting all ideological about whether subscriptions or advertising are better models. And you're seeing a lot of companies that bought fully into the idea that subscriptions are sort of, you know, the road, the path to heaven, realizing that the incremental next subscription is always more expensive and that the ad business is actually kind of a great business. And you're seeing a lot of people, including your employer, kind of tack that way.
1: Well, I think the reality is there's sort of, unless you're privately funded as a nonprofit, putting that aside, like the pro publicas of the world, if you're trying to fund yourself, it's either going to be through subscriptions or through advertising. There aren't a lot of other options. You can do events. You guys are experimenting I mean, with I events. Think, actually,
2: I think if you look at really mature, successful media companies like Disney, and you say, hey, what business are they in? The answer is always, well, they have 13 different revenue <laughs> lines, and they manage each of them like really, really well, and you should like talk to the guy who runs cruises. He's really brilliant. I mean, I think it's a pretty tough, complicated business, and I think this is actually why it was such a mistake for these venture capitalists to dive into the media business, is it's just not a I figured one thing out and now I'm going to scale infinitely business. It's a business where great entrepreneurs who figure out a series of revenue lines can build good businesses, but not Facebook.
1: Yeah, and that's interesting, right? Because Facebook was going to rule the world. It was the sun god of social media. And it basically ignored subscription models, as did Twitter. As did Google, you know, viral sites that didn't have another reliable revenue stream or revenue stream that they could control, or as you pointed out, multiple, ideally multiple revenue streams from different types of businesses, just like banks do.
2: Yeah, these are very unsexy businesses. We all got into the idea that business was all about one weird trick, and I just think that's not the news business.
1: It's not the news business. But, you know, Substack has come in with with another model of very sort of curated subscriptions to curated expertise. Obviously, Bloomberg has the most rarefied and expensive subscription model of all. It's curious to me, I think, at the end of the day, is your view of this, try both advertising and subscription and see what works out, or you don't see the business itself getting formed in very basic ways around which model you choose, because it shapes how people engage with what you are and the type of content and information you provide.
2: You know, I think if you look at the kinds of news businesses and media businesses, not exactly the same thing, but related, that have endured, you see people who aren't getting ideological about their revenue models, who want to do, in our case, you know, journalism with a lot of integrity and have creative, smart business operators who are looking for ways to make money doing that. And if it's selling tickets to events or sponsorships of events, if it's selling subscriptions if it's branding newsstands and airports. You know, each of these things, by the way, can be really corrupting, every one of these revenue models. Subscriptions can kind of turn you into this lunatic, Alex Jones. No, he was selling supplements, that's another one. But, you know, pandering to the most extreme members of your audience, advertising can just bribe you. I mean, there's all sorts of temptations in all of these. But I think if you look at the enduring businesses, I mean, the New York Times is a great example. They're in a lot of different businesses. They're being opportunistic and aggressive about making money and saving the kind of ideology for the work.
1: And also having what they define as quality. For sure, a- And making yes. quality a leading weapon in its competitive strategy and funding and organizing itself around quality as opposed to sensationalism, a la Alex Jones.
2: But again, there are other other media, very successful media enterprises that have always defined themselves by sensation.
1: At the very end of your book, you have what reads to me to be remorse from a guy I've never known to be particularly remorseful. And I just want to read this back to you. Gasoline can create useful energy, but it can also simply burn. And by 2023, it seemed clear that the power of this new social energy had been to destroy any institution from the media to the political establishment that it touched. Those of us who work in the media, politics and technology are largely concerned now with figuring out how to hold these failing institutions together or to build new ones that are resistant to the forces we helped unleash. Talk to me a little bit about that provocative important statement you wrote in your book.
2: Yeah, I mean I guess I think remorse is about right. I guess except that I wouldn't I mean, I wouldn't give myself too much credit as a sort of central actor in this, but you were there too at that in these early utopian moments of digital media. We really thought we were going to destroy this sclerotic, corrupt old media and build something new and better. And well, like <laughs> we got half of that done, and I think power particularly of social media, I think, to discredit institutions is something we're just like really still just starting to reckon with. How do you have a CDC when all of the dumb things the CDC probably always did and all the mistakes they always made are totally visible, like much less a bunch of idiots running around trying to report the news all day. We're bad enough at it when nobody was watching and catching us in all our errors and now people can watch in real time as journalists sort of fumble in a messy way toward the truth.
1: Well, and as institutions make mistakes and people are so much more unforgiving of other people's mistakes than they are of their own. And they're so visible. And then it's easy to become a faux expert, an instant expert on complicated subjects, whether it's public health or politics or anything. And it becomes easy to throw But it's fire. also
2: easy to pretend kind of expertise, the sort of mystique of institutions. I mean, I think about this a lot with journalistic institutions. Like when I was a cops reporter at the Indianapolis Star and some news came in that somebody had been shot, and we'd hear something on the scanner that probably wasn't quite right, and we'd call the cops. They'd give us like the wrong name because they were still figuring it out. Then we'd go to the wrong address and knock on the wrong door. (laughs) And by the next morning, we'd more or less have figured it out. But that process through the day was a total mess. And now people see us doing it through the day and say, wow, these people are total idiots. And of course, we were always idiots. It's just that now you can see it.
1: And all the you know the misspellings of people's names that you could make as a young reporter on a smaller paper that you learned from and weren't in public view are now in public view the very second you make those mistakes. Which, you know, may be a self-regulating mechanism, but it also requires an audience to be more tolerant than most people yeah, are. Yeah, more understanding. The other thing I wanted to get at in that paragraph that I read back to you is that And, you know, you mentioned it earlier that the sort of utopian web idea when BuzzFeed was in its infancy, people would post happy stories about positive things and you'd fill them with accounts of constructive, positive social change. And in the end, a significant, if not an overweening part of the web became a cesspool and that Facebook discovered that hate speech or divisive language or confrontation was more engaging for people than positive dialogue. And then not only recognize that and saw what this Pandora's box they'd opened up, but began building algorithms that took advantage of that and helped give it momentum. It obviously invaded our politics. It became embodied, I think, in the Trump candidacy and the Trump administration. But it was much broader than either of those two things. Can that be bottled back up again? Or maybe it's just good that it's out there and we have to
2: deal with it. No, I think Facebook has moved on. I saw a study today saying, you know, news and information are almost entirely gone from Facebook. When I open my Facebook, it's pictures of my friends, kids, and videos of cats with the big change being now that they're videos. But I think Facebook was kind of slow to this realization, but in fact did realize they'd sort of turned themselves into this toxic place and alienated a huge share of their audience and are trying to wriggle away from that. But it's hard, I think, with a social network once you've lost people to bring them back ever. But yeah, but I think, you know, it's funny you say algorithms. I mean, in the book, one of the moments that I always think about is with BuzzFeed, partly because Jonah had these relationships with Facebook, partly because we were good at thinking the way they thought. We didn't treat Facebook as some black box. It's not a black box, a bunch of people making decisions and trying to serve their audience, trying to keep their audience consuming their product a little longer. These algorithms are not always that complicated. Like one of the big shifts was to a system that made comments more important as a factor of whether you got promoted. And at some point somebody whispered to us that one comment was equivalent to four likes. That's not some kind of complicated mathematical formula that you need a PhD to understand. And very little of this stuff is. That's just a fairly straightforward system working in a way that's quite easy to understand. But in that case, what it meant was the thing that gets privileged is like, I post a racist meme. You write, you are a racist. And then I say, no, you're a racist. And then the algorithm says, wow, look at this incredible engagement, shows it to everyone each of us knows immediately.
1: And then they all get to jump into the comment stream too. Yeah, what a good world we live in now. Thank you, social media. Ben, nobody escapes Crash Course without sharing a lesson learned with our listeners. So what do you know now about digital media that you didn't know when you got the Buzzfeed job back in 2011? And I remember, I think having lunch with you back then, to talk through some of your goals for your new adventure. So how is the Ben I'm talking to on this podcast now different from the Ben I had lunch with in 2011?
2: I'm much more aware of how long it takes to build these things. And so I think, you know, I would never try to build that fast. I mean, there was this opportunity to explode onto these platforms, but I think, and you know, this could be set of political movements that grew up in these platforms too, that they proved incredibly fragile like if you look at all these color revolutions in the Middle East or something, like the speed of growth meant that you weren't really building strong connections, that they could evaporate very quickly. And so, I mean, I think the hardest thing for me is just resisting this impulse to, you know, spend all the money you've raised instantly to grow as fast as you can, but instead try to do really quality work, connect with an audience in a very direct way, move much slower. And I think one of the lessons of that in a, again, much more straightforward way is that, you know, venture capital is not, probably should not be investing in news.
1: Ben, faster than you can read a Buzzfeed listicle, we've run out of time. I wanna thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Tim, this was fun.
1: Ben Smith is the author of a new book, Traffic. He's the editor-in-chief of Semaphore, and you can find him on Twitter, at SemaphoreBen. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that while I think I know what kind of business models support good, high-quality journalism, maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm just stuck in that same little bubble that David Sarnoff and Bill Paley were stuck in, or maybe the same bubble that those people at BuzzFeed were stuck in. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis, Moses Andam, and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen, and we had editing help from Sage Baumann, Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine vanden Beilard. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course.